how do we enable organizational systems to appreciate the fact that human beings are going through this adjustment and work with people to bring about a desired change instead of doing it at them or to them or on top of them or you know how do we engage with people to go through change Okay. Hey, Alma. Hey, Tuli. How's it going? Ah, it's going great. And I'm just going to kind of spill the beans, which is that okay. we're recording this conversation or this introduction after we've had an awesome podcast conversation with the great Dory Blessoff. It's a great so conversation. Who's Dory? Who's yes. Dory? Dory, Dory Blessoff. Um, we got to know her, Alma and I, um, you and I. <laughs> Oh my God, for the listeners, um, because she was our instructor in graduate school. She taught, um, she taught us in this really great class about strategic change. And um, she's also been a longtime instructor uh, in the, just at Northwestern, both on the undergraduate and graduate level. And she's a very, very accomplished professional. She's held a variety of leadership positions in organizations from change management positions to chief people officer working independently for herself and working in organizations. She's just done a ton of cool things. Yeah, she's great. And this this conversation, I would say, is almost as like expansive as her own professional trajectory. So we hear a little bit about her origin story and how she got into kind of people change work, kind of in broad terms, um, what that looks like. And um, we talk also about one of, well, personally, one of my favorites, models for understanding how human beings can in a healthy and integral way go through change and that is um william bridges transitions model so she goes into that she gives some like really good examples um she talks about where she's at in life right now there's even bonus an incredible incredible moment where she reads us one of her own poems yes and uh yeah it's just oh, such such a gem yeah, there's so much richness. I, I have to say, this is one of those conversations where I I'm eager to listen back to it because I yeah. there there are many many things that um, that I want to kind of pick on. I guess just one uh, one thing to note before we actually bring you this awesome conversation is that we started on kind of a mellow note because Dory walked us through a beautiful breathing exercise um, kind of before we got started. So just, you know, note that we, we are extra mellow in the very yes. beginning. Or maybe do a breathing exercise with like pause right now. Yeah. <laughs> do a breathing exercise for a minute or two and then you'll be on the same wavelength with us and then you'll see how it picks up speed. I think it does. What a great idea. All right, so now here is our conversation with Dory Blessoff. Dory Blessoff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. So I'm wondering if you can if you can just uh, talk to us a little bit about um, a little bit about your background and how you got to teaching at Northwestern yeah. University. Sure, uh, I'll I'll preface this by saying I noticed most many of your guests start with like when they were in college. Uh, for me, because I just turned seventy this year, that was fifty years ago, mm -hmm. and if I started then and continued, it would be a very long podcast, and I can't guarantee I would tell enough examples and stories for everyone to be. <clears throat> interested in continuing to listen. So I'm going to I'll, I'll answer your question, Tuli, and then I'll just kind of skip on the top skipping stone level of the 
the river of my career. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, Dory, I thought when you when you prefaced it, you're like, they usually start at college. And I thought you were going to say, so I'm going to start around five years old. And I was like, well, yeah, go, go further back. <laughs> well, actually, I have been on somewhat of an ancestral recovery phase of my life right now. So actually, I could start much farther back than that, uh, which we can talk about if you're interested. But cool. I have been trying to reroute myself in the kind of the sociology and the and the roots um, of my ancestors, why they left Europe, why they came to the United States, what happened when they got here, mm-hmm. what harm they caused, what harm they endured, who can I look to for role models, what values are a through line, what values am I completely rejecting? You know, there's a lot of sorting through of the ancestry, but that was any, uh, any kind of, uh, takeaways so far that come to mind. All right. Now this is something I noticed in your other podcasts before people could answer one question, you pepper them with another, that will just, Julie? no, never. <laughs> I don't, Julie's like curious He's on top king. of curious on top of, you know, curious. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you know what they say? A, a, a Jewish answer is, is another question. It's another right? question. Right, so. <laughs> And I appreciate that very much. Fair well enough. Fair enough. Okay. Okay. Keep us. But you can answer the first one if you want. It's fine. What was the first one again? <laughs> your life story. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh my tell, life. Tell story. us about your background. Yeah. <laughs> tell us about your background. Um, I think that the way that you framed it though was how did I end up teaching mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Western? That's true. Yeah. So <laughs> my career. So I do have to start a little bit. I, I can start in college. I just was. It's just, anyway. My 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 college. Uh, focus was on a double major of comparative religions and political science. Now, I attended three different institutions uh, because in my early 20s, I was very um, discerning about the value systems of the institutions that I was part of. And I ended up graduating from a different place than I started for that reason. And I, but the two, the threads of comparative religions is sort of the one, I come from a faith-based history family family history in Protestant, a Protestant United Methodist. Um, I marry someone who's Jewish. We've raised our kids Jewish. That's an entire element of my life. Mm. Tuli and I have talked a little bit about that. But also I am fascinated and um, drawn to all spiritual traditions because I think they capture the the essence of a people. I'm not talking now about necessarily the institutional form, but the beliefs and the practices, the rituals. And I just am so um, intrigued with that. So that's one reason I majored in it. And it also represents, I think at a larger scale, my belief in what it means to be fully human. And that's something that's been a through line in my career is trying to find ways to enable that in the environments that I have chosen to work in or be in, not always workplaces, often beyond workplaces as well. The second thing, the political science is really the systems thinking. You know, when I look back on it, it's really like, who is in the room? What are their agendas? What are the power dynamics here? What's going to happen if we shift this and change this on this part, you know, and and looking at history a little bit and, and sort of the unfolding of human organization from a political perspective. Yeah. So th- those really make sense. Was, and then I didn't actually choose my career career. I just worked to have a job. We started having kids. I, I've been with the same partner spouse for 43 years and we've had three mm-hmm. children who are now grown and we have a grandchild and I live in a multi-generational household with three generations. And so 
uh, that's been a very rich dimension that and that has helped to have that double major as well in both both situations <laughs> Power um, dynamics. <laughs> no. um, so career-wise i really chose my career in my late 30s what happened was one saturday morning i found myself at work in a hospital i was an ex executive assistant to the president of the hospital and he decided to do a culture change and I found myself typing away in the old days. We were, you know, typing away. Maybe it was electronic by then, I think, because I wanted to do a thought paper on how what he was trying to do could be done better if we got engaged with the employees, if we listened to what our customers were saying a little, patients were saying a little more, if we didn't just consider what doctors wanted, you know, all of the things that I now teach, I put in this paper and he said, why are you, my executive assistant here on a Saturday, writing this and my VPs don't even get it. Like what's going on with that? And it made me realize that really my calling was to do something that I loved at work instead of having a job to have a job with good benefits so that I could support the family Yeah, and do everything I cared about outside of work. Like that, what's wrong with that, right? It's a picture. So I went back to school and got a master's in my late 30s. And during the course of that, I changed from healthcare to manufacturing to a really unique organization with a really beautiful culture. So I could learn about that. And the then assistant dean from Northwestern gave me a call to see if we'd take a practicum student on our team. And I said, sure. And in the course of that conversation, she discovered I was getting my master's and who I was studying and she said, you know, we're about to open this, this uh, major up because we're trying to get the School of Education Social Policy to position itself as a, a place where consulting firms and other organizations can find talent to come and work in their organizations instead of just looking at it as turning out teachers and administrators and social thinkers. And, and I don't mean just in a bad way, but I mean, she was trying to enlarge it. And so they were starting this LOC made learning and organizational change major, which of course hit my passion. And one of the things I learned about working is sometimes even when you have all these great ideas that you get at grad school or from your colleagues or reading or whatever source of learning you have, you can't necessarily implement them because there isn't the appetite or the investment to do it. So being able to teach provided me with that in, that extra place that I could talk with people and, and talk in the classroom and finding out what students were thinking and just really have a dynamic place that I could keep learning more so than. So that's how I got started. And she interviewed me. They brought me over for a faculty lunch. They interviewed me in that way and asked me about systems thinking and fifth discipline. And the two books I used were fifth discipline. This is in the mid nineties by Peter Senge and Leadership in the New Science by Margaret Wheatley, which at the time was a seminal book about complex adaptive systems and how to bring in quantum science into the organizational and leadership wow. sphere. And I used those two books for 15 years solid. What were the topics you were teaching specifically? The five disciplines were personal mastery, which is about closing the gap, being energized by the gap between your vision and current reality, shared mm. vision which is not top down. It's to go around and find out what's in people's intrinsic to people about what their motivation is and why they're working somewhere. Team learning, which is about what you all are about, which is like making thinking explicit so that we can examine our own thinking and examine others thinking and 
come up with ideas maybe no one's thought of yet. So team learning, um, systems thinking, well, mental models, mm -hmm. which we talk a lot about in our, our program. And it means a lot to be able to talk about that, but just the unconsciousness that we bring to our thinking and how do we slow it down and learn why we made that generalization or, or ask other people, how did you reach that conclusion? So we kind of walk down the ladder of inference, as we say. And then um, systems thinking is the last, is the one that pulls it all together, is the interdependence, the complexity. How do we find ways to little things that can make big changes by understanding the interdependence and how things all work together and understand decisions impact may be delayed in time. And we may not really understand the result of what we've done until later. And so how do we work with that and get more input from more people who see the impact? It's all about democratizing workplace. I mean, pretty much those were the things we had separate weeks on that to answer your question, Alma. And then yeah. um, the Margaret Wheatley work, some students didn't resonate with it at all. And some did. She writes in a much more nonlinear fashion, true to her topic, which is living systems. Yeah. Um, and the evolution of life and how information is is life is energy and it's great it's a great reframing of everything that we've she she contrasts Newtonian thinking with quantum thinking and most of us are trained in Newtonian thinking analyze it down to the parts and yeah. figure it out right clockwork instead of seeing what's emerging so she was really the earliest influence on me of but now I'm getting more Adrian Marie Brown and um, you know, emergent strategy and just how do we appreciate the nature of life and the nature of people and people's systems as in constant flow, constant evolution. And how, what does that mean for how we, like, if you want to go back to, I've never used managing change, never to use it. Can we call our Miss Lachman or whatever you guys came up? <laughs> um, like, I don't think we manage it. You know, I think at best we appreciate it and then we try to facilitate it in a positive way. Um, yeah. But those are the things we talked about in class. And it was done. It, I taught experientially because I was lucky enough in my training and development work earlier in my career to learn about adult learning and experiential learning. So we did. This is all in person, of course. We did. I never talked for more than 20 minutes out of the three hours. And we always had small group things or simulations or exercises. Yeah. yeah. Simultaneously, just to clarify, were you always also working or you were working full time? Wow. Yeah. Teaching has never been my day job. I'm still adjunct. I'm not actually a professor, Tuli. I'm an instructor. Um, <laughs> but my identity and my life and energy and passion and love has gone into this for so long. I hope, I hope the gods of the academy will forgive my uh, my error. Please. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure you didn't make it again. I don't know. Again. You know, I saw you at, gradua at graduation in your regalia. You looked plenty professorial to me. So, And I wanted to. I <laughs> love ritual. That's actually my father's. My father did get a PhD in uh, group dynamics. My parents both had interest in the field that I'm in. My mother is the one who introduced me to Bridges. What? I know we're going to talk about William Bridges and managing transitions. My mother, who taught, went back. They got divorced. She went back. She got her um, master's in counseling psych. She taught at community colleges, workshops for women returning to college. Mm. And she taught transitions experientially to help wow. people let go of their old worm and their old role and move into a new role. And my dad was in uh, organization development in the context of the church after he was a minister and yeah. then a seminary professor for many years. So I come from that 
So there's a mm-hmm. lot in my family that has encouraged yeah. me to to be in this, but probably the social movements of the 60s and 70s and how do we make the values that were important in my family something that's true of uh, at a macro level as caring for people, caring equally for people, um, paying attention to those who are not heard, mm-hmm. everyone welcome in our home. These were kind of the, so I, I was looking for ways to do it at the larger level because uh-huh. of the formative years of my teens and 20s. Wow. Did, did your dad ever talk about Kurt Lewin in group dynamics? He did, but he more so talked about um, the National Training Laboratories, which were just starting. So Ken Benny and some of the early um, group di- team dynamics, like, um, what do they call it, Tavistock? I don't know. Okay, well, anyway, some yeah. some some people at, at, at our program know about that. But anyway, he was more that person wow. than, than the Kurt Lewin. But he, he talked about it. Yeah, I saved yeah. some of his own books. Oh, that's amazing. I um, I was very, very moved by when I learned about Kurt Lewin in one of my first classes in graduate school and read, uh, read uh, I think, a really important paper about Lewin. And um, I, I, didn't re- I mean, Kurt Lewin, uh, you know, escaped Nazi Germany. Yes. And, he, you know, he started he was a he was a child psychologist, um, but basically had this idea of like, OK, how could we prevent what happened in Germany and in Europe, period? And, you know, and he had this idea of kind of spreading democracy and democratic ideas. And and um, at least my takeaway was that is that one of his observations was that one of the last bastion of authoritarianism, bastions of authoritarianism, even in the West, is in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, and he figured, how could we abolish that? So, you know, and, and came up with, you know, action research and group dynamics and all that stuff. So anyway, I'm and unfreezing, freeze, unfreeze. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but the unfreeze thing, that's that's um, that. Yes. And um, I think that one of the things, though, that some people don't get about Lewin is that the that change model of like free, uh, unfreeze, freeze, you know, freeze again is, is really just refreeze is just kind of a small part of his, you know, much, much broader uh, uh, philosophy of change, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, t- totally. You know, but like the idea there is to basically try things out. You, you know, almost reminds me of a component of your class, which is, uh, and it's a little bit different. But the idea of design thinking. I mean, this is this was not called design thinking in any way, or you know, but it, but but of trying things and you know and seeing what happens and then trying again. Yeah, and to the point about democratizing, you're really reaching the people who's who are impacted by the change rather than some idea that the top has about how this is supposed to be, you're actually starting with what the need is in the voice of those who are going to be using whatever it is or impacted. So it, yeah, um, I am going to mention something here that's important to me. It's about looking at the early, quote, founding fathers, unquote, of the field of organizational change. Oh, okay. I think understanding the context that you bring up is very important to Lee. And the intention of many of the early thinkers of, of European descent who were intellectuals and academicians who wrote and practitioners, some of them, either out of social psychology or um, I don't think industrial psychology was really a thing yet. Maybe it right. was. It probably uh-huh. was. It probably was because of the industrial part. Anyway. Looking at their intentions and the context in which they wrote is really healthy and important. And I find that partly from this project I'm working on with other members of the MSLOC community, 
called the Social Justice and Organizational Change Project. You might have heard of it. Kimberly is the leading editor for it. Mm -hmm. And we've been meeting for about two years, attempting to critique the frameworks and models and theories that we've inherited in the organizational change field, which largely come from the male European descent um, writing after post-World War II people, right? Including William Bridges and many other really excellent thinkers uh, that that mean a lot to us. Yeah. And were at their moment, they were critiquing something that was part of their formative years. Yeah. And now our formative years are saying what other voices have not been heard or not been included. And what is the origin of a lot of this, even the term human capital mm. or the Gantt chart or theory X and Y or productivity, a lot of which was perfected during enslavement in the United States. Mm. And so there's a history and an, an origin story that we're trying to bring into the whole study of what we've inherited. And not in an effort to take away from how important yeah. those who were in our field were they were they were countercultural in their time there is right. no question they were trying to say something different than the dominant norms that had a lot of power so in that way they were in their context they were countercultural and trying to do a com- a complete picture as they saw it you know and i'm not saying they were wrong i'm just saying as we look now there's more to it and some in some cases it it hasn't been as liberatory as I think they thought it could be. Yeah, this is fascinating. I yeah. I, I feel like we can do a whole series of podcasts on on that. <laughs> I'm I'm tempted to to just at least ask you about one of those words that you mentioned, um, which is productivity. Like just as an example, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about where that comes from and some yeah. of the or just some some of the critique or some of the thoughts that that you and your colleagues have been. Yeah, um, Julie and I have thoughts about this word. We've made just. <laughs> I remember a conversation with Tuli one day, I think I was like walking down the street and it was something like, hey, how are you doing? How was your day? And I think I said, it's been pretty productive. And he was like, it doesn't have to be productive. And And I was like, you're right, you're right. Why do I define a good day or a bad day during the week, right? Monday through Friday is a good day if it's really productive and it's a bad day if it's not. And I was like, you're so right. (laughs) The system, it's gotten to me. (laughs) No, we've internalized a lot of the norms, obviously. Everyone. I mean, we live in this system that rewards that, right? And teaches us, trains us in that. Some would say is designed to do that. And I think to answer your question, there's a really good article, which we have now as part of our course. um, And I'll be glad to send it, make it available. It's tracing back the productivity techniques to enslavement that the early industrial managers were interested in how much to get out of a human being in order to make in order to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish which was to make profits right so the extreme brutality and torture and rape and things that were involved in that process for enslaved people um, are not continued in that form, but the value of extracting as much as possible from the human unit is continued in different forms and sometimes is continued in the brutality as well. And when some might argue mass incarceration is brutal in that way, free labor. Certainly, if you look at Jim Crow laws and what happened didn't happen during Reconstruction or happened soon after Reconstruction in the South in the United States, you will see the reversal back to that type of brutality and economic chains, really, um, of a whole segment of the workforce. So it is a very large topic. <laughs> um, I wanted to give 
one shout out to Selena Wilson, who's an alum in our program and yes, helped. She was a TA in the class when I took it. She was you. a TA yeah. and yeah. has, yes, that's great. I thank you for placing the history because I forget which uh, summer you all came through. Um, Selena still comes and speaks to class. She also speaks to my undergraduate class and presents the abolitionist model. And she's the one, um, actually, she agreed to be a contract contracted with me to help redesign the undergraduate course that I was doing. And then Maggie and I asked if she could TA and she helped us do that for the, you know, our course, sustaining design, designing sustainable strategic change. And these were things she helped us understand about the history. So there's, um, that, so that's why we've incorporated it into it because it has to do with our, what we take for granted, like human capital. I have never liked the word human capital. Why are we using capital in the same phrase as human? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a carryover from that thinking that human beings are to be used for how much labor they can produce. And then then what? When, when they're too old or they're disabled or they don't have the educational um, requirements, they're cast aside or looked over. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happened at a macro level. So thus the voices now that are saying, hey, what about us? And and new policies that are being looked at, like guaranteed annual income or, you know, different ways of talking about including everyone in being, quote, productive. And believe me, I like a good day where I checked everything off my yeah. list. I get it. And, yes. you know, there's a role for efficiency and, and all those things. It's just at what cost do we accept it without examination? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. That's the point, right? No, that's the point. It's not the the concept of productivity is not inherently evil, right? And does it need does it have some roots as you just informed us that should really be taken into consideration? And and of course, should we be more conscious of like how to like what weight we assign it in our lives and in mm -hmm. the evaluation of our worth or the worth of our day? <laughs> yes. Right? yes. That, that is really valid criticism. That's it's worth thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I mentioned my ancestral recovery project. I discovered that my people are all Protestant, Protestant work that, so that was part of the Reformation in Europe. Protestants mm -hmm. protested against Catholicism. Individualism came into being because you could just relate to God one-on-one. -on -one. You didn't need to go through the church. Um, et cetera, et cetera. I will tell you though, the the level of joy, the level of suspicion about joy is so tied in with this thing. If you're not working hard to the point of suffering, you're probably not doing what you should be with your life. And if you're enjoying too much, you're probably sinning. And that is one of the deepest imbalances that I have discovered. Talk about internalized. Yeah. And Alma, I'm going to shout out to you because you laugh so wholeheartedly. I love the way you laugh. <laughs> You just put your whole body into it and you do it often. And I think there's cultural differences. I think most other cultures that aren't trained with the seriousness and the stoicism and, you know, suffering is good. It means you're working hard enough. Like why it does not have to be that way, but that is, yeah. that is what we've inherited and internalized. Yes. Uh, currently yes. current dominant norm currently. Right. The modern day secular or secularized version of kind of that protestant work ethic ethos is grind 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 culture yes. Yes. grind scale all of like you still see it all over linkedin instagram tiktok mm -hmm. you know all the productivity hacks etc they're still as much as we want to stay in right now supposedly right now we're in a i just heard it referred to as a well-being revolution within the like kind of corporate world and I'm like really 
What they're really saying is that Gen Z is sick of this bullshit and is questioning it, whether they're doing it the best way or whatever it doesn't is, is a totally different story. But they're questioning it and they're not okay with it. And they're starting to demand things that, you know, in corporate language, they just want to call well-being so it can have a nice little category. <laughs> well-being. I, I agree. And I would add to that that sometimes one understands the wellness thing as how can we get people back to work yeah. or, to, you know, like, go ahead, take a break. Cause it turns out you're more productive. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's this, if one wanted to be suspicious, one could be about, you know, I'm sure that there's well-intended and it is like, we took a moment of breathing before we started our talking today, because all of us are kind of scattered and, you know, there's a lot to be said for mindfulness and absolutely there's so many benefits um, but the i wouldn't call it a revolution by any means in a way sure it was like for i don't know what i was reading hbr who knows it was something yeah was like, mm. <laughs> yeah the trend of the, the fad of the day yeah let's yeah. let's make it for real let's go deep yeah. the antidote uh the nap minister if anyone oh, yeah. on social media is the antidote the nap the, ministry oh yeah the nap ministry and particularly for aimed at black folks uh you know yeah. like no no resting is resistance yes that's a powerful concept yeah. and, and joy is resistance joy yeah. is resistance and that's that's coming from the dominant culture of that my ancestors are part of and i yeah. am Julie, have you heard of that account no at the nap ministry i Everyone need to check that out that's great the nap ministry. there's a book there's like there's a whole trisha, bunch of concepts, trisha but. hersey is the name of the trisha hersey and she does have a book out now Amazing. it's fantastic yeah, I, I need to check that out. Um, and also, I was going to like Selena Wilson is fantastic, and we should absolutely have Selena on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll put yeah, that on. She's, the, uh, she's yeah. someone who took everything she's learned, and now she's the executive director of the organization that she was part of. And oh, great. it's really, really, uh, really inspiring, powerful story. And she's just so generous with her, her perspective and her sharing, and it's been great. Well, I Every time I go to the Bay Area, I try to meet up with her, but it's great. she's an executive director. So yes, <laughs> same. Same. it will happen one day. <laughs> exactly. All right. So then we, we better get on her calendar for uh, quickly for um, next year. Yeah, for, yeah sure. Yeah, hey, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll do our best. Um, so I wanted to kind of uh, uh, ask you a question that's it, we're, we're, I don't think we're changing the topic at all. Um, but, you know, we're talking about a lot of really important ideas and. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of one thing that, uh, or maybe the main thing that your class was about, which is change. And, yeah. you know, I, I guess I'll ask the question in this way, you know, in, in our class, uh, we talked about organizational change, but we also talked about personal change. Mm. And, you know, like one of the, one of the assignments in your class story is, is that we have to keep, we had to keep like a change journal where, you know, we choose something to change and then. Uh, basically, Dory, you would read it every week and provide feedback, sometimes even via via uh, videos, which were great. Yeah. Um, and um, and uh, it, which is, by the way, for any like educators or teachers out there, it's such a wonderful tool. Like, you know, you're sitting there marking papers and whatever. If there's any point where you could just shoot a quick one, two minute video, whatever it is, and give some one, feedback. Yeah. Well, yeah, whatever. Yeah, one yeah. minute. It's so yeah. it's such a nice thing I, yeah. as, as yeah. a learner that was really really helpful but um i guess my question is like can people actually change and, and what does it take yeah yes short answer yes yay 
There's hope. Uh, and from a living systems point of view, we're always changing, actually. Just we may not be aware or it may not be intentional, but we're always responding to our environment. Uh, hopefully, the more aware we are, we're checking in with how the choices we're making align with what we care about creating in the world. What impact are we having on other people? So yes, we're yes, people can change. Yes, people are changing all the time. I think the heart of your question, though, is can people change substantially or like fundamentally? And to me, that question goes to mental models and belief systems. And that's closely akin to values. And, you know, Tuli's talking about this assignment. So I have done this for many years. And um, <laughs> I mean, it runs the gamut from like, I want to floss every night to uh, I want to uh, change by not using my phone when I come home for three hours until my kids go to bed, which is a very hard one, by the way. That person enlisted the help of their kids and it became a lot easier because the kids would start regulating like, oh, let me give me that phone. That. <laughs> it was great. Uh, to the more fundamental ones, which I'm seeing a lot more of in the last several years, I want to know how to take care of my body and my, my being. And I want to like disrupt the ecosystem of not enough sleep, not enough exercise, not enough nature, not eating healthy, not being mindful and try to achieve, you know, a new way of being. I mean, it, it's a very, that's the gamut. Okay. So we're talking like flossing to like transformation. And what I would say is those who pick a behavioral change can generally do that in 10 weeks. And I often will encourage the students who have like profound change on their mind to bring it back to something small that may make a difference, like pick meditating every morning for five minutes, just as a starter and see how that goes. And then maybe add a healthy meal and see where it goes. And then maybe add a walk with a friend and see how that goes. So you build on your successes as you go, which is analogous to, I think, an organizational change that's incremental that, you know, because we're not just talking about the class itself that Maggie Lewis and I teach is designing sustainable strategic change. So we're not just talking about change for change's sake or the, the appearance of change. We're talking about how do we get underneath to what's driving the current practice or the current behavior. And if we're going to change what's driving it, that will lead us more into the beliefs, mental models, and really examining our unconscious habits. And in some cases, unconscious biases, unconscious expectations, unconscious assumptions. And that is hard work. And that takes years. I'm just going to say it. That takes years. So yes, people can change. Yes, they do change. And I would say almost everyone learns a lot in the process about even a change that they choose to make. It gain more empathy with people at work that they're asking to make these changes without even thinking about how hard it might be for them. Because it's hard for me to, you know, floss every night. Like if that's hard for me, think of what I'm asking someone else to do to change entire technology system or accept a new leader without thinking or adopt a new uh, product line that they have to be accountable for in two weeks. You know, think of what I'm asking of other people. It, it gives people a lot more empathy, I think, too. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's interesting, like the the genre of like uh, habit change literature, like in, in popular culture, it has just blown up. I mean, you know, all the, these books, Atomic Habit, The Power of Habit, this, that, these are all like bestsellers and everyone's trying to figure out how to, how to change a little, <laughs> you know, so yeah. it's, it's good to hear that there's a, uh, that there's hope. Yeah. 
it made me think of okay so I'm I'm going to foreshadow a little bit because I know we're going to we're going to talk about that framework of managing transitions. Um, and you just mentioned with the personal change. Wait, I might lose it. But hold this can be edited out. OK, there was like a little there was a little through line I found and it made me think about how uh, helpful. OK, so you said that at the root of fundamental change here, it is at the root of fundamental change is being able to change is being able to to shift those mental models, kind of question, uproot, whatever, do something to those mental models and to those assumptions. Right. And in transitions, one of the core kind of pillars is that we have a difficult transition because often we can't imagine what that new world looks like, like what a different reality actually looks like. And so bringing it back to personal change, um, I think I, I left this country, like I'm half American and half Colombian, right? Right after undergrad, even in my senior year, so I'm 20 years old, I knew that I wanted to leave. And it wasn't necessarily forever, but one of the main reasons, I had studied some sociology and anthropology, and one of the main reasons was like, I absolute at that point 20 year old anger I absolutely reject the idolatry of efficiency and productivity and individualism in the U.S. I don't want any of it I, it was a little <laughs> maybe a little extreme there are some good things in there right <laughs> I've, I've figured that out now but at that yeah. point I really wanted and I knew enough I don't know very much but I knew enough about sociology to know that as much as my nucleus my family nucleus right had helped kind of introduce other models and like you know much more of a collectivist model um still I had been educated in the U.S. and there was no escaping the socializing <laughs> even your tone of voice is no escaping it's very <laughs> I get it. I'm I a little it. dramatic. To the, I resonate with this. You don't know. Intensity. So anyways, go ahead. Go ahead. So I, I moved to Colombia for family reasons, to be with my family, for personal identity issues. And the other one was this third one that I don't talk about often, but mm. it was really, I don't know if I had the words, but I like, I wanted to undo the socialization of so many American values that I just could not stand for. Okay. Um, at that point in my life. And so I ended up staying in Colombia for 13 years. I don't know if I completely wiped the slate clean, <laughs> but, and, and, or maybe I just reevaluated, but my point is going back to transitions and like that new, the change, like the new, de the desired future state or that desired, like oh, the change that we're going to, that hasn't quite materialized. I think also in personal change, we're so sensitive to environment, right? We're so sensitive as human beings to the system in which we are existing and moving and breathing. And I found leaving the country and being completely, that's a particular country that has, especially if you're in certain parts where there's like almost no outside influence or very little outside influence, mm -hmm. um, not no, but little. Mm -hmm. And that really helped to, to mm -hmm. have a tangible example of what other mental models look like, what other assumptions, mm -hmm. like what is collective, what do collectivist values look like in day-to-day -day interaction yeah. yes. in a yes. way that wasn't theoretical because when you yes. read and whatever, and like, of course I had been exposed to it as, you know, family stuff, 
but it was very different to be in the full system. I hadn't yes. been in Colombia living since I was, you know, six or seven. And so going back, that really helped with that personal change. So I guess my question is for you, kind of bridging it. Ha ha ha. Fun. <laughs> got it. Got bridging it. Bridging to bridges. Yes. <laughs> bridging to bridges. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so proud of myself for that one. So corny. <laughs> well, like corny. me, I l- laugh at my own jokes better than most, more than most people. Go ahead, Alma. Oh, well, you you got it. Bridging, bridging to bridges. So bridging to bridges. Like, how does and and personal change as well, which however you want it. Like, how does being in a different environment where the values are different, the assumptions are different, how can that assist you in your road to kind of intentional change? I mean, I think you've explained it already, which is you have to be able to experience it. You experienced it. That's the difference. You felt it in your body. It had to do with the tone of voice that people used. It had to do with what happened when you showed up at someone's house and they immediately offer you food. It has to do with the joy that's just reuniting with friends that you haven't seen in a while. It has to do with calling for help and knowing that you're going to get it. Like these are experiences of being in community. Mm. And when those are the dominant norm, you start to see, you start to experience a different habit without even knowing it. You just experience it and you know that it's possible. It becomes true for you. And then when you come back into a place that it's not the dominant norm, it can be challenging because you keep looking for that reinforcement from the pod. You know, it's like, well, where's the, you know, the call and response. And then there's no response (laughs) to that new behavior and it's harder. It's harder to maintain it. So you seek colleagues like you and Thule found each other who can keep reverbing back that, that experience that you, that you were able to have. Mm. That's, I mean, I don't, I, I can't really relate it I'm not doing a good job of relaying it to bridges if that's what you're asking me to do. <laughs> I'm just reflecting on what I think happened to you during those 13 years. Yeah, as far as hmm. and I think a lot of it even says in the books that Tuli's talking about going on vacation or getting into a new environment is a good place to try a new habit mm, because right. you don't have the constant reinforcement from the old environment of the old habit. Right. And so in a way, it's I think analogous. You went into a new environment that had different habits, different routines, different daily practices, if you will. Yeah. But which comes first, the mental model or the routine? Yeah. I'll tell you where I'm at with that. And I I don't usually respond to either or questions very well. (laughs) I'm (laughs) not supposed to ask them either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's the opposite of an open-ended question. They're not a beautiful question. (laughs) That was was an unbeautiful question. We're we're just modeling for folks how not to ask questions. (laughs) How not to ask questions. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for doing that, Alma. Um, (laughs) <laughs> wait, wait what was the question <laughs> sorry no, sad. No. <laughs> well which i i oh I, which comes first which, which comes this first or that? the mental yeah. model change yeah. or the habit yeah. change so right. i have really cool. really appreciated uh one of the things i love about teaching is this people who are in the ha- labeled students which is all of you all and everybody in the learning community teach each other right and um the model that i just learned about three years ago was the six conditions for systems change. Peter Senge and a bunch of folks wrote it. And it's an upside, it's a upside down, well, it's a triangle, and it has explicit, semi-explicit, and implicit levels to it. And it's really, I think, comprehensive. And the answer is both. It requires both. And the answer is you can start anywhere on it. Um, basically, the the most explicit are see if I can remember them, um, resources or where investments are made, um, practices. 
and policies, practices and policies, and one other thing I can't remember. And the semi-explicit is relationships and power dynamics. Mm. And the implicit is mental models. And there's lots of social examples of when we've had one but not the other. So like we can have a policy change like voting rights, which supposedly was enshrined in our constitutional amendments. Mm -hmm. And then again in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act, but now is being reversed state by state, particularly for black and brown communities. So the mental model shift did not occur. And so without the mental model shift, we are may always be subject to these reversals of even policies or laws. So that's an argument why. Now, does that mean we don't pay attention to policies and laws? No, it does not mean that. It means we have to accompany that with continued education, dialogue, all these other things. So a lot of things have to happen at the same time is the answer. Because if you waited till everybody changed their mind, mm-hmm. we wouldn't, where would we be, right? So you can't, I think it's, I think it's an, it's a wonderful case for why when we're talking about social change and positive humanity oriented social change, the way we're talking about it, I think it's a wonderful case for why we need everyone in every location and every role doing what they do best with that in mind, you know, because we need people to change the laws and policy and we need voting and we need people working on voting rights and restoring voting rights. Um, We need people working on democratizing literature being available. Like the American Library Association just came out with like freedom of like a whole thing about um, the right to be exposed to all ideas, you know, trying to be democratic as opposed to some of the book banning going on in Florida and other states. So we need everybody doing things in every role. Um, Deepa Iyer has a, I-Y-E-R has a wonderful kind of, lotus blossom of um all the different roles people can play storyteller visionary uh, caretaker you know all it's everything is needed for social change so i think that's all of those things are needed at the same time is the answer to my question alma to your question (laughs) it has been my question as well what should i focus on to make a difference right right yeah actually in this type of work it has deep implications right where where do i focus but i really like that model so it went explicit semi-explicit and, and then implicit, implicit right? at the bottom Mental. yeah very nuanced answer thank you of course <laughs> <laughs> i've changed both and to both all like you had to, the mo- multiple truths multiple realities it just you have to look at it more broadly than we were taught either yeah, or yeah missed everything so we've hinted, or at least I have a few times at um, Bridges. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this model. Could you uh, could you give us sure. your understanding of this model, why it's important? Sure. The model is uh, was formulated by William Bridges and later joined by Susan Bridges, his spouse at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is that there's a difference between a change that occurs, which is an external event, such as having a baby getting a new leader, moving to a new home, changing companies, pandemic, (laughs) huge pandemic. And it can be at a macro level, a worldwide global scale, or it could be in very individual and micro. Mm -hmm. Um, And this happens all the time to us in, on all levels. Right. And the, the idea behind this framework is that there's a difference between the change and our psychological adjustment to the change. And so they decoupled those two things to really focus on what happens to human beings as they go through these events or occurrences, psychologically, what emotionally, what happens. 
And the model is simple. There are three different phases. They're not meant to be linear, although in general, we sort of move in this direction, but we can go back and forth. And the three stages are endings, mm. which is when we come to terms with the fact that something has to be let go of. Yeah. So loss is a big part of that and grieving and being angry. And basically the grief curve comes into play emotionally. There's so many examples of this. Oh my gosh. Um, we'll get to one. <laughs> the neutral zone, which is neither the old or the new. Yeah. This was a new one for me. I had no idea about the neutral zone. I just thought we went from old to new and that was that. Mm-hmm. But right. emotionally, if you think about it, the neutral zone, because I think we're in a massive in between stage right now with major social institutions and major questions, climate crisis, racial justice, survival of the species, and lots of stuff. Um, Neutral zone means the old has been, is not structured or in place the way it was, and the new has not emerged yet. So the neutral zone is, is long and it's in the middle. And then the new, which you were talking about earlier, Alma, is um, a new structure, a new leader, you know, we, we are now adjusted to that. And we're starting to accept that this is different and that there is life after the change. So it's those three phases that we go through. Um, and and that's the main thing. There's another point about to leaders who, who, or whoever has been designing an organizational change or any change really, um, it could be parents deciding to adopt a child and not and being getting used to what that's going to mean, but not telling the current child or children that that's going to happen until the last minute, and then being kind of taken aback that the kids have such a reaction when you've, as the parents, had a chance to be processing all that it means from probably months or years, right? So in an organizational setting, leaders have a great idea. They get everybody engaged behind the scenes. They don't tell anybody because it's not ready yet. And then they spring it on people and then they're taken aback when people are like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Or, you know, which is why I don't like the term resistor, resistance, because actually it's just people having their valid response that if leaders were honest with themselves, they recognize they had that they may have had that initially too. Um, and so how do we enable organizational systems to appreciate the fact that human beings are going through this adjustment and work with people to bring about a desired change instead of doing it at them or to them or on top of them? Or, you know, how do we engage with people to go through change? Yeah. That's what this leads to. And, and at least it does the way I use it. And I think yeah. most people... It reminds me in a prior conversation, you um, said that you don't like the term change management. And I remember reading this book for the first time, I guess, two summers ago. And one of the, the phrases that popped out, which is kind of a central idea is like change does not need to be managed. Transitions are what need to be managed. Um, could you tell us more about like, why don't you like the word change management? And if, of course, why don't you like resistance as well? That's fine too. Well, and I, you know, I I earlier talked about rest and enjoy as resistance. Mm. This is a different context. Yes. This is when people get labeled Resist. as being against something that mm. like get on the bus or, you know, get on board. There's all these phrases, right? And yeah. I just find that if we're, we would be a little more patient and listen better, we would find really valuable insight from the people who do the work every day, whatever is going to change about their job 
may have implications for the organization. But if we don't invite them to the table to understand how this is going to impact them, we totally miss it. And then when they get upset about the fact that the customer is going to suffer, we don't want to listen to them. We think they're not on board. And when I say we, I mean traditional leadership that does the top-down change. And so managing change to me feels like it's something that we do to people. I mean, I've always preferred the term facilitating change. Maybe that's just a euphemism, but I've always preferred that term because I think what we're trying to do is partner with people to go through the change in the most positive and effective way, honestly, in a way that's least distracting and and uh, disrupting to the people's um, emotions and, and sense of stability at work. Mm. So do you want some examples? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Example, please. Wait, wait, what happened? I was waiting for Tuli because that's like Tuli's signature question. And I was like, no, you were you were on a roll here. I figured you would just you would keep going. Trying to but share. Anyway, this is we're just okay. we we just read each other's minds perfectly, Alma and I. We're 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 great co-hosts. That's great. Okay. He's like, that's too least. I'm not talking. <laughs> and silence is usually okay, but that I've got the impression from the two of you that we really wanted examples. Um Please, please. But one way, well, I guess I wanted to give some examples of how this can be helpful. Yeah. Is I find in organizational change level, because I in class we talk about like personal change, organizational change, system change, you know, social change uh, at the organizational or team level. I find that the, the middle management, what's traditionally called middle management, has the hardest role because they have to quote, sell the change, which has been, quote, sold to them. And then they have to deal with all of the often legitimate concerns that their teams have or employees have about the change. And depending on how that's all set up, it can be very difficult to get the benefit of engaging people. And also the middle managers get really stressed out. So a lot of times I would use it as a workshop when senior leaders would say, hey, we need help because our middle managers aren't quite on board. Mm -hmm. um, putting aside for a moment how I would contract with that senior senior leadership team. And one, by the way, I was out on my own for 11 years. So when I'm talking about contracting as, as an independent consultant, and then when I went back in as a leader with my executive, you know, colleague executives, contracting, meaning reach agreement about. Um, leaving that aside for a moment, what I would do educationally was offer this framework to people, give them the, the nuts and bolts. We'd usually do some sort of, um, I would ask them to bring out their experience of change and when it worked well, what did they do? What was done to make it work well? And when it didn't work well, what was done that they think didn't work well? And we just built on that to say, hey, let's look at what worked well and let's try to emulate that. And let me add some thought here from William Bridges' framework about managing transitions so we understand what's going on with the people we can adjust that. I would also often ask them to rank themselves on where they were. Were they still experiencing grief and loss mostly and having a hard time letting go? Did they feel like they'd let go, but they still were pretty unclear and it was disorienting, but they were kind of excited about innovation in the middle or were they ready to go with the new one? Were they psychologically adjusted? I'm ready to go. Rank where you are in there and then rank where your team is. And then let's talk about the challenges and opportunities of you being ready to go and them experiencing a lot of loss right now. Like what kind of communication and relationship do you need to ensure so that they can move 
with you through this change. Or if they're basically handling it and accepting it, but you've got serious doubts or you don't even want to talk to them about it because you've got serious doubts. What's your work then? Your work is you need to talk with your leaders about your concerns and your questions so that you can be honest when your team members ask you that question. And are there opportunities here to get your team members involved in addressing some of these open issues that senior leaders haven't had a chance to think about what, what it takes to operationalize it? So get them involved earlier so that you can have a better plan. So that's one way that it can be very useful. Um, I have sat in meetings with many leaders at the senior level and middle level, and actually employees as well, going through this model and talking about it. And what seems to be the, the big aha for especially the senior leaders is the loss piece, is like grieving. And for many years when I taught this in class, and then I would do a lot of workshops and work with, with the leadership teams on it. I would, I would spend time emphasizing about loss because again, dominant norm wise, culturally speaking, there's very little acknowledgement of grief. It's kind of the stoicism thing like, oh, I'm sorry, your mom passed away. Be back at work in three days, you know, smiling. <laughs> um, it's not very humane and it doesn't match how people feel things and, and go through life. And so <clears throat> I would spend time addressing it and just normalizing the fact that loss happens on many levels. It can happen because we lose our favorite route to work, you know, because there's construction or a tree fell at the storm last night or the L is stopped because of a medical emergency. Like you can have that, right? You can have your favorite leader, your very favorite leader that you bonded with take another job. And it's really it causes a lot of, of feelings of sadness and, and concern and fear about what the new leader will feel like to you, you know? It can be a technology system that you were really competent in and now they're switching it up and you didn't find out about it until you went to training. And now you have all these questions and all these concerns and you have to just deal with it. <laughs> so you're angry because something changed and you weren't involved in it and you don't really understand it and you're angry. So the, the loss stage is really important to acknowledge and normalize. It doesn't mean people, doesn't mean we expect that it'll take months to get over it, but not to acknowledge it at all, I think has a big cost. Yeah. So the best leadership tactic is just to admit it. Um, my example for that is we had a leadership yeah. change at my prior company that I was at the chief people officer and the leadership the leader that was leaving was the founding leader and when a new leader was coming in and many people had joined the company for that founder because of his technology expertise and his entrepreneurial spirit and his etc and so they were and they were just finding this out and it was shocking news and so part of the communication plan was for an explanation some of you may be feeling shock and may that may follow with with anger or grief and that is a normal part of this process some of you may be feeling like, huh, wonder what this means. Oh, I wonder if I'll get to try my new idea now. <laughs> you might be kind of excited in the uncertainty, right? And some of you may be, okay, let's go. I know this new leader. I've worked with him on something else. I'm ready to go. And it's normal to be anywhere there. And then we staged consistent um, asking for asking their questions. We did daily FAQ, frank, frequently asked questions. We had department director leader meetings. We had team leader meetings with all with employees so that there was just a lot of couple weeks to air and get all your questions answered. 
And I, I thought that was a good use of it. Wow, that's a that's a really great um, example. And I was you you really my next question was like, okay, but like, what are some ways that you can help? What does going through grief look like at work, right? In a way, so of course, we have so many conceptions of like what professionalism means, and and in general, there can be a lot of uh, normal resistance to like the role of emotions at work or at your job, and how much you can express and not express. Oh, so, no. yeah, I was thinking about that very thing, you know, because when I became a manager for the first time, which was in the Nine, 80s 90s 80s or 90s I can't remember um so long ago in a good way there was a rule that um you were supposed to leave your feelings at the door oh yeah no that was a stated thing and for Pete's sake do not be seen having lunch with your team members who report to you no <laughs> I mean it was like military you know and I mean how yeah, so we've come a long way since then. Uh, when I was the chief people officer, there was lots of Kleenex and, and people knew it was safe to cry in my office. I cried almost every day. Wow. I, I saw Shireen's thing about crying, but I cried a lot. Um, and, and men on the leadership team cried. The Good. CEO would have tears sometimes about something really close to his heart. And just the, and, you know, I think there's a limit. It's not, I think if people need therapy or some other, support that we're not there to solve everyone's personal needs yeah and at the same time it's we throw so much into our work and if we care about it we're gonna have feelings about it so my thing was feel your feelings find someplace safe that's not going to harm anyone for you to vent them with a friend or whatever your routine is journal call a friend whatever and then let's talk about what options uh, are available for you to respond to whatever it was that, you know, triggered you. Yeah. And so then once people kind of go through, although it's not linear, but as they begin to express their grief and like, okay, accept that reality as it was, was ended, like in that example, right? What is, could you tell us a little bit more about the neutral zone, that transition, like what helps people traverse it? And like, how, how can people go through that? Well, I would be glad to do that. And I'd like to share a poem that I wrote when our MSLOC program had its 20th anniversary, we had workshops mm. and I was asked to have one on this topic was mentioned and I had the, the benefit of Renetta McCann and Lisa Jager. Uh, I asked if they would help me workshop it and we did something really fun together that was experiential and Renetta worked a little bit on narrative I know that's an interest of yours Alma um yeah. Lisa led us in a anyway it was really fun and I had about it was quick I think it was 45 minutes lots of very you know if I had more time I would write a shorter letter kind of thing like we had to spend a lot of time getting it down but I had like seven minutes of the time and so of that time, I decided I wanted to write a poem because the title of our workshop was what if the neutral zone is not neutral? Because the term neutral kind of implies detachment or quote objectivity or what's the quality or the, the content neutral zone. And that's what I wanted to spend more time because it did occur to me, this was in 2022, this last, this last September, it's almost a year ago. Um, this is one of the things I was thinking about for today. 
I am experiencing living awareness of fractals these days. And fractal is a term from quantum science about the patterns that we see existing in the smallest to the largest. So spirals, Mm -hmm. you know, there's DNA, there's galaxies. Like it's a repeating pattern that happens at all scales. Fractal, F-R-A-C-T-A-L. And I feel like that's what's happening. And not that you asked me or that this is relevant, but I'm an Aquarian. I'm Aquarius. And one of our things, and I, I love to I'll say dabble, but I love to read astrology readings that are from people that have actually studied it because I think it's really helpful in terms of perspective. But one of the things about um, Aquarians is we tend to think like it in big terms, even though we act in a very caring way in direct terms. So um, there was a Peanuts cartoon that said, yeah, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> and I was thinking sometimes that was true for me. <laughs> doing HR every day sometimes kind of feel like that. I love but uh hashtag <clears throat> confessions. <laughs> I know totally. I didn't say it very publicly usually, but uh I have that feeling sometimes. Um he's great, but ugh, do I have to do this? Uh anyway, so I started thinking I actually have feelings about the point to the point of feeling like I want to cry right now to the point of what our species is going through right now and the choices before us as a species. And that has to do with our relationship with other species. Do we understand that we are equal and not better? (laughs) Uh, And this isn't even talking about the social construct of race, of having a supremacy attitude about everything, that there's always better, there's always more than and less than. It could be race. It could be gender it could be gender identity it could be ability it could be age you know i'm 70 and i am now experiencing ageism real time and it's like wow okay okay and i had it a lot as a woman during being sometimes the only one and all that so i had a lot of experience now being a white woman understanding what white means in terms of supremacy as a whole another dimension of the identity and what that means and so there's just a lot of like mm examination of what is the species relationship to the earth to other species and to each other right to each other and where are we in that yeah and climate the amount of climate disasters i'm sure everybody knows about what happened in maui people having to run into the ocean they it just was it's like catastrophes you know that really bring that's that's sort of like facing your own mortality it's like it brings it into focus what's going on and what are we meant to be doing? So that's where this poem came from. And it's called, it was called Poem for the Neutral Zone. Um, but that's kind of like, you know, MSLC jargon. So I cha- I'm changing it to Poem for the In-Between. Nice. Somewhere in between the brilliantly inevitable sunset of a day whose colors fade as the earth turns and the unstoppable exquisite sunrise of a day born with all its burning potential. Somewhere in between lies the night. When we breathe deeply, we recall, we mourn, we cherish, we rest, and we dream. Somewhere in between saying goodbye, feeling the seductive tug of the familiar, and saying hello, anticipating the exciting surge of new possibility. Somewhere in between lies this moment, 
the here and the now, the only never changing and always changing reality, our sacred chance to be fully alive. All around us is the poignant dance of the D, deconstruct, decompose, decolonize, dismantle, and the re, reimagine, renew, rebuild, regenerate. And in the midst of the swirling creative chaos of this dying and this birthing, we hear a clarion call to remember who we are, why we're here, what we care to evoke into being with love. In that clarion call lies an invitation to discover new ways of understanding how we define ourselves and show up, how we nourish precious community, how we flourish by sharing power, how we perceive and believe what is possible. So let us honor this passage. Let us honor our tears of farewell, our devotion to what has been built and those who built it. Let us honor the truth of past suffering and those who bore it and bear it. Let us honor our deepest purpose and our intention to embody it. And let us bravely attend to what is emerging all around us as life just keeps dancing. For this is the moment to choose and choose again and choose again, to breathe deeply, to reflect honestly, to evoke lovingly, to commit collectively, to become the change our souls yearn for. Transformation awaits. Very beautiful. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing that. I mean, I feel like this would just be a great place to close, <laughs> you know, just on, on that. Um, maybe just one or two more questions, Alma, right? Uh, is that a... Sure. That work? Right, how are you on time? Oh, that's true. Actually, time-wise, we're, we're maybe at close. We could close on this. The only other thing I, I had thought about that I wanted to share is you asked me about my work and, and what I'm curious about. Yeah. And yeah. I do feel a little bit of, I, I would like to be able to represent my age group a little bit because it's different. Amazing. I retired. So, so, so can I you, did a lot of thinking about it and that's why I wanted to share it. So, so Dory. And you can, can cut other stuff too. I don't care. No, no, no. I, this is great. Yeah. This is great. I just want to ask the question. That's great. So I'm, that was such a, a beautiful poem and yeah, you know, kind of as a final question, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your current work and maybe about what you've been curious about lately. Well, the poem actually shares kind of the deepest level about my current work, <laughs> the sense that I'm really taking time now that I have it because I'm semi-retired. And the semi part is I'm still teaching at Northwestern, one undergraduate course and one graduate course. And um, it's very meaningful to me. And I put a lot of time into it. And then I also coach about four people and I consult uh, if the project and the team feels like it would be a good fit. So I'm kind of on my own terms, I guess you could say. So that's why the semi-retired. But for a year, I did very little except teach. And I found that it took me a year. To, I would call it recover, actually, from full-time work since I was 22. And the longest I had off was to have my third kid. And I used all my vacation time and our tiny little six-week parental leave so I could put three months together. And that wasn't time off. So I was really exhausted, deeply exhausted, and had been burnt out off and on for quite a while. And I felt the need to recover and restore. And so I went back into therapy 
um, I felt the need to reclaim a lot of the moments in my life when I powered through because something was required of me, because I was trying to be productive, because of all those things we were talking about earlier that I had internalized, that I wasn't worthy. Remember Alma, the worth, mm. worthy day, worthy hour, worthy. Mm -hmm. I wasn't worthy unless I did those things. Yeah. A lot of things that I, I just needed to unwind and un, you could say kind of deconstruct. But at the same time, I was really craving this ability to see a through line. So developmentally, what happens when we're older is we go through, you know, because adult development continues after you're 25 or 30. And there's different uh, theories about it. I looked up some thinking about this recently. Eric Erickson had one. Uh, it's the time of despair or or integrity, um, which is an interesting way to put it. And Gail Sheehy, who was a more updated version in the 90s, talked about she expanded a new passage to call it second adulthood and 45 to 65 is about mastering one's purpose or you know what one is cares about whatever and 65 to 85 is integrity so integrity what an interesting so integrate integrate so my work the reason i'm bringing this up is to say i feel like part of my work is to integrate and have integrity around all of the decades of my life and what is available and exciting and calling me for the last third of my life. And now that there's more longevity for those who have the privilege of having resources and healthcare as I do, and not everyone does, um, I can look forward to another 25, 30 years, assuming health stays in. So what am I going to do with that time? So it's not, it's not the, the normal, like you reach a certain age and then it's all downhill from there. That's not the paradigm that I'm working with the mental model. And just like my age group, made menopause not a pathology but a, a normal phase of life mm -hmm. um aging is not to be looked at like it's a it's a <laughs> that you're not worth anything anymore so Tuli, i can tell that you're stretching and getting tired <laughs> sorry oh no no not at <laughs> okay. all not okay. at all not at all i'm uh i'm, I'm right there with you okay yeah. okay yeah wow so the the work part i wanted to state that because for those in our 60s 70s 80s there is a different quality to how we spend our energy um and if we're lucky enough to have grandchildren that we're near or we can be with that's part of it too that's part of it a big part of it um the other thing that happens and i've read recently read a book about women artists not everyone thinks of themselves as an artist who does art and I do a lot of art. I'm a I'm a singer songwriter. I have an album on Spotify. Wow. And wow. I want to do another concert when I'm probably in the next couple of years. And I'm gonna make it a multicultural extravaganza. And so there's a lot in me that still needs to come out and wants to come out that's not related to going to work every day. And I'm calling it work because it's sort of like spiritual work. It's like the ability to manifest something that is yearning to come forward. So, so other work I'm doing is, uh, and back to my roots of, of community-based work and social justice work. Um, we have a local, I live in Oak Park. We have a local effort being led by um, black members of our community who are leading us in looking at what reparations might look like at the local level here. So in my faith community, we have a reparations group that's supporting that effort and I'm just learning and learning and learning as much as I can about that. Uh, I facilitate for the One Earth Film Festival, which is 
um, environmentally oriented climate justice um, film films that are shown in March that are awesome. And there's other things like that that I just feel like this is my work. You know, yeah. I do still do some coaching. Um, mostly people find me. I, I'm not seeking anybody or anything, but people find me or we have a conversation and they say, are you available for coaching? We, and it's mostly younger women in leadership roles or DEI roles, mostly women of color who are struggling with how to be authentic and feel whole and navigate the power dynamics and the systems that are holding them accountable to change the culture <laughs> when that's impossible, right? So it's just this, how do you be a full human, take care of your own self and try to change the system at the same time? And honestly, we just have a lot of conversations. I also do some consulting and I also do some facilitating in addition to my teaching. And what I've noticed that's really fun at this age is I kind of bring everything to everything. So like I bring coaching in the sense that I'll have a spirit of inquiry and deep listening and give space for people to discover their own intelligence, which is also kind of how I teach a little bit and how I facilitate groups. And there's some times when I just completely remove myself from what's going on in the group because they're doing it themselves and I don't need to be doing anything. Um, so like how to be present is the other thing, like how to be fully present and allow the group to do what it needs to do. Mm -hmm. And that's a really, and that's what I'm curious about Tuli to answer that question. I'm very curious about that dance of being fully present. There's a new term I learned from my writing part. Oh, I'm writing also. I'm writing. Really? Yeah. In this. This is uh, quite the retirement. Uh, yes. <laughs> I know, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel that pressure. I don't feel the pressure. It's coming from joy. It's coming from this is amazing. I love to do these things. And now I have time. We're yeah. gardening. We're designing a native plant redo of our entire lawn in the front. Wow. Um, I'm watercoloring. I'm, I'm felting. I'm, I mean, it's just, it's like you have time to express these things that are deep and, and in community I'm networking in a different yeah. way. I, I've joined two groups that are really interesting networking groups that are very different for me, but the theme of them is they're all student-minded. They're all interested in dialogue and deep listening. One is on the topic of racial healing mm -hmm. and the other is on the topic of making change in the world, especially related to investments. So like really different for me, but I network pretty often and people reach out and I network. I do a lot of that going on walks, having conversations. I feel like that's part of my work. Yeah. So, I mean, these are things that I feel some people get really busy with retirement, like, oh, I'm busier than I were when I was working. And some people are lost because they don't have a structure. And it is helpful to have some structure, like I have teaching that's a structure, right? And I, but I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's in part of multi generational awareness. I'm very aware of Gen Z and wanting to do a good job helping them navigate and change the workforce, not just fit in. So in my undergraduate program, that's what I work on is how to be feel good about what you bring and also be a change agent. Um, I love being part of the social justice and organizational change project. I get to work with a really gifted author, practitioner, academician named Yabom Gilpin Jackson. She's in Canada. Um, she and I are writing a chapter together. There's other really cool people. And we're, we're looking now to how to expand not just an academic article, but like a personal reflection or like this poem, like let's make it more experiential, not just academic writing, which is started out as. Um, 
so those are, you know, the, the curiosity is really in the context of all of that rich kind of incubation is I feel like I'm dealing a lot with my past and healing it. I feel like I'm learning to be fully present and I feel like I'm moving much toward being open to new things emerging that I probably couldn't have imagined that may be important in the world or in my life that you know, from a fractal perspective, I do believe when one person heals, it creates a field that allows others to do so. And so I do feel like all of these levels are important, but I, I, I just feel very, very fortunate and privileged and um, grateful to have this time in my life and continue learning yeah. at this stage. Thanks for listening. I, we don't, we don't hear a lot from my age group tends to go be invisible. So yeah. I've been heartened by what I've seen in our MSLOC group with some of the other women talking about aging and, you know, what comes of it. So I just wanted to emphasize that. Thank you for listening. Of course. Thank, Thank you, you for, for sharing. sharing. Yeah, for sure. For it, sure. It's a good, uh, you're giving us like a, you know, a good mental model for what to look forward to for you know, please God, when we are in our seventies and eighties and nineties and hundreds and all that. So yeah. 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 For sure. I have, I do have a final question. Okay. You've you've kind of answered it along the way, but I want to give you a chance to maybe have a, a final thought on it. So at the very beginning, you talked about a through line and that through line was, I wrote it down. Um, I think in kind of your first jobs outside out, out of college, right? You started looking for this, like, what does it mean to be fully human? And how can I bring that into, or how can we bring that into everything we do? As I think you've touched on it throughout this whole conversation, but any final thought or what is your definite, your working definition of what it means to be fully human? I got chills when you just said that. So thank you for putting yourself into that question. I just saw a little thing the other day on social media, of Viola Davis giving an award uh, receiving an award speech. And she said, you know, when we're about to die, we don't think, I, I'm paraphrasing, I apologize to her, but we don't think, oh gosh, I wish I had been my ideal self. <laughs> what we think about is how was I able in my life to be more of myself and be who I uniquely am meant to be? And I think that's fully human to be who we are meant to be. And I think that the only way we can have that possibility is in environments that support and invite us to do that and be that. And that's why having community in the workplace or having this learning community or working in the local community, it all matters how we invite and support each other's unique humanity, being themselves and who they're meant to be. And yeah, that's what, that's what I would say. So thank you for asking. <laughs> so it was glad lovely being with you. Beautiful. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for joining us and talking to us and sharing of yourself. Um, it's, it's incredible. I know that I've gained, I'm, I'm excited to re-listen to this conversation. Okay. Well, feel free so. to cut. Cause I know we went long, but whatever, whatever you need to do. Let's, let's see, you know, okay. whatever. Okay. Well, well, All right. mo- it will, we will mostly not cut and only for, for stylistic reasons. Let's say. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you, Dory. Mwah. Mwah. <laughs>